Any racing fans here? Anybody a big racing fan? Oh, yeah, that's right. I know you are. Couple race. I'm not. I don't know anything about racing, so if I totally embarrass myself with this opening illustration, sorry, just keep it to yourself. We are preaching on love today, so. <laughs> but I want you to imagine a drag race, okay? It's a little different kind of racing. But maybe you've seen a drag race on TV. You've got the two cars lined up at the starting line, and they're revving their, their engines, and they're spinning their tires. I think it's to get the oil off or something like that. It makes all this smoke. It's probably mostly to impress the crowd. All right. What's that? Warm up the tires. Can't they just knit little cozies for that? <laughs> there's, a, there's a market there. You know there is. So imagine two lanes, and in the left lane, we have Johnny Hotshot. Johnny Hotshot has a Dodge Viper with 200, no, sorry, 640 horsepower. That's a lot, in case you're like me and you don't know. Top speed of just over 200 miles per hour, goes 0 to 60 in 3.2 seconds, finishes the quarter-mile drag race in just over 11 seconds. Now, that's pretty good. There are, you know, drag race cars that can go faster, but for a street car, it's not bad. I think it's better than what my Nissan Quest minivan can do, so, you know, that's good. Anything better than that is, is pretty good in my book. So there he is, and Johnny Hotshot is revving his engine, and there's smoke coming off the tires, and the, cloud, the crowd is just clapping and cheering. They're just so impressed because it's Johnny Hotshot. And then in the right lane, we have five-year-old Susie Smith. Susie is on her pink Schwinn tricycle with a front wicker basket with the little you know, streamers coming off the handlebars to show that she's serious yet fun. Susie can reach a blazing top speed of about two and a half miles per hour, can finish a quarter mile drag race in about an hour because she's got to stop 10 times for potty breaks and another five times to rearrange the dolls. So who's going to win in this race? Susie. <laughs> You're right. And let me tell you why. Because what happens, no matter how strong that Dodge Viper is, no matter how fast Johnny Hotshot can go in that car, what if the finish line is that way and Johnny goes that way? Does it matter how fast he's going if he's going in the wrong direction? And the answer is no. If he's always going in the wrong direction, he will never, ever win that race. And Susie Smith, bless her heart, for all her pedal power, if she keeps going in the right direction, she's going to hit that finish line, isn't she? So you're right, Ron. She's going to win that race. You're on to me. You see how it is. Got to change my tactics. Note to self. Today we are talking about love. Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I don't think it's a very controversial statement to say that love is incredibly misunderstood in our world today. Would you say that's fair? Love is very, very misunderstood. And, and as a Christian, as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, as one who believes this is God's word, I think the problem, honestly, is that God made us, he designed us, he wired us, and our love is to reflect his love, and when we separate ourselves from God and we go our own way, we lose the very definition and standard of love, which is God himself. So we then have to come up with our own way of loving people and loving each other and seeking love. 
And what happens is our love gets distorted and it slips and slides into selfishness. And in our efforts to find fulfillment in loving relationship, we often veer off course and find instead anxiety, struggles, hardship. So we're coming here to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This chapter is often read at weddings. It's a beautiful passage to have read at weddings. I don't know if it was read at our, was it read at our wedding? I was so enamored with my bride that I just I was just testing her. I knew it was. How many how, oh, I know I know I won't put you on the spot like I just put myself on the spot. No, cuz we're talking about love and I don't want there to be a bunch of arguments after church. You know, it's interesting that it's read at weddings and and it's okay. Okay, this is a good chapter to read at a wedding because it is about love in general. But in the context of this letter to the Corinthian church, it's actually about something very specific. And it's not really about romantic love. It's not really about the love between a husband and a wife. Now, it can apply there. There's some broader applications, and it's okay. But this chapter on love is actually first and foremost about our love between each other as Christians. And specifically, how we show that love, how we live out that love when we gather together for worship. And you go, really? I mean, it's love is patient, love is kind. But see, the context, if you know, if you've been following along, we're in, what is it now, 2021? We're really far into this long sermon series on 1 Corinthians. I think it's part 20. And you see that the church in Corinth was incredibly messed up. They were fighting each other. They were backbiting. They were arguing over who was more important, who had the greater gift, who got more, I think, kind of FaceTime in front of people. Who should everybody listen to? And they had a lot of problems within the church. And then last week, we looked at chapter 12, where Paul starts talking about the spiritual gifts, these gifts and abilities that God had given to people to be used for the church and for the glory of God. And they were taking those and saying, Well, I'm better than you because I'm a better preacher. Well, I'm better than you because I have more faith. Well, I'm better than you because I can speak in these tongues that nobody can understand. Well, I'm better than you because I I have the gift of prophecy and you need to listen to me. And they're arguing about these gifts that God had given to them. And so Paul used chapter 12 to say, look, they're all from God. They're not supposed to be ranked. They're all important, but the whole point is they all need to be used together. There must be unity in the church. Now, in chapter 14, he's going to go into the specifics of their weekly gatherings and how the gifts should be used when they get together for worship. So he introduces the gifts and he talks about unity. And then he's going to talk about the specifics of how those gifts should be used. And right in the middle, he has this chapter on love. And whenever you see that in Scripture, whenever you see a topic sandwiched in between two similar topics, you need to understand that the author is drawing attention and saying, this is the most important part of what I'm talking about. So in their arguments, in their worship services, Paul is directing them to what we're calling the way of love. In fact, that's what he says at the end of chapter 12, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. So let's dig into this amazing chapter. Hopefully you've opened there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. We're going to start, let me just read for you verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, what he does here is he gives three sets of gifts. And then he says, without love, those gifts don't end up where they're supposed to. They don't result in the thing that they were supposed to result in. He starts with this idea of tongues. And again, we'll deal more with the topic of tongues next week as he gets into some definitions and the usage. But for now, let's just say that there's kind of two general definitions in Scripture. One is that overall speaking in tongues was God supernaturally enabling somebody to speak in a language they didn't know. You saw this at Pentecost when the apostles stood up and they spoke and everybody else heard it in their own language. And so it was this ability to transmit the message of God in languages that you didn't know. Now, if you're a missionary or an apostle, that comes in really handy, doesn't it? Because if you know any missionaries, you know a lot of time is spent before they go on the mission field going through language school. Anybody ever been through language school? No. I am bad at languages. I took Latin in high school, so I would never, ever have to meet somebody that spoke the language that I had studied and felt <laughs> embarrassed to, to have to try to speak that with them. Uh, I took Greek in college, same thing, although that helps with scripture too. But, you know, it's always good to study a dead language because you don't have to be too embarrassed. <laughs> Languages are tough. And so God gave the gift in this very multicultural Roman world as the gospel is spreading across borders, across boundaries, across cultures, he gave this ability to speak in such a way that others could hear. Now, Paul also mentions, if I can speak in the tongues of men, that's generally understood as known languages, or of angels. Now, this is where the great debate comes in. What does it mean to speak in the tongue of an angel? And some people will say, well, I just make noise, and it's this heavenly language that nobody understands. That's possible. You know, the biggest part about this debate is that nowhere in Scripture does it just flat out say this is what it is. The other thing that's interesting is that it seems that in the Corinthian church, they were arguing about this like so many other things. Some were saying, well, we're speaking in tongues of men, and maybe others were saying, we're speaking in tongues of angels, and that's even better. Elsewhere, Paul's going to say, look, a tongue, or it's still a language, whether it's a heavenly language or an earthly language. The point is to communicate. And I don't know here if Paul is saying, yes, you're right, you're speaking in the tongues of angels, or if he's just saying, okay, you're saying you're doing that. And he's just moving on. But look at where he goes. The whole point of tongues in Scripture, this idea of speaking in another language, was to communicate. It was to be able to communicate, specifically, the gospel. And yet, look at what he says. Without love, it is meaningless and a useless noise It is a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So here you have this gift whose purpose is to communicate, and yet Paul says, as good as you might be at that thing, if you don't have love, you're worthless. Because you've lost the whole point of the gift in the first place. Then he goes on to prophecy. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains. And some people were saying, look, I'm so close to God, and and you need to listen to me. I'm going to give you my, my message of prophetic utterance from God, and I will tell you what God is saying, and I have this incredible faith. 
And they wanted recognition in the worship service. You'll see that in the next chapter. And partly, rightly so. The people needed to hear what God was saying. But look at what he says. He says, look, you want to be able to have this status of being recognized as being sort of the spokesperson for God, and yet he says, if you have not love, you are nothing. You don't have any status. In fact, you're not even a lower status. You're you're nothing. You, you don't even count. That's harsh. So here they are saying, no, 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 I need to use my gift because it's this important. And Paul says, well, without love, it's actually less than less important. It's nothing. You're missing the point. And then he goes on. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. There's a strong theme in Scripture especially in the New Testament, of knowing that Christ's kingdom is coming. And there should be a willingness on the part of Christians in this day and age and in this world to give up our possessions, especially to help others. And we've talked about some of the difficulties in Corinth and the famine they were going through and they were trying to share with each other. And it seems that some of them were saying, look, I've given up a whole bunch of stuff. I'm trusting that I'm going to get a lot when I get to the kingdom of heaven. And others are saying, well, I've suffered a lot. I've been hurt. I've been abused. I've been persecuted. I'm going to gain a lot in the kingdom of heaven. And Paul says, look, if you do all those things, but you do them without love, you gain nothing. So here's the height of their argument. And Paul says, but if you don't have love, none of that matters. And he's giving them a whole new starting place to go back to, to say, this is what you need to be talking about. The lack of love undermines the whole purpose of the gift. Now, at this point, I want to give a clarification. Because it becomes, I think in today, and it's been this way for a long time, but we can often say, well, yes, we just need love. We don't need anything else. Right? So if you're just loving but you don't know Scripture, well, that's okay. If we're just loving, but we don't really point people to Christ, well, that's okay. That's enough. That's not at all what Paul is saying. He's not saying we should have love instead of these other things. He's saying in order to use these other things and stay on the right direction and the right course, we must have love. For example, theology, the study of God, something I enjoy greatly. I enjoy reading, I enjoy studying, I enjoy discussing with other believers finer points of theology. But without love, theology becomes proud and argumentative. Have you ever met somebody like that? Instead of lovingly discussing theology and what we know about God, it becomes, well, I'm right and you're wrong and I have to prove it. And it becomes this great debate. Preaching without love becomes legalistic and showy. Oh, look how great I am. Look at how I can string things together. Look at how cute my points are. Look at my wonderful illustrations. And it's not love. And the fingers start pointing at me instead of pointing you to Jesus Christ. Even helping others without love can become competitive and selfish. That seems really odd, but we can do all these things to help other people. And then we can say, look at us. We're a church that helps other people. We do it a lot more than that church down the street. We're much more loving and helpful than they are. We reach out a whole lot more than they do. 
It's like it's a competition. Or we can say, well, we help people and that just made me feel so good. Well, did you really help them? Well, I don't know, but it was good to give them that bottle of water. It was good to give them that sandwich and I feel better. Doing anything for God without love for those God loves guarantees we will not be demonstrating the gospel. That's the seriousness of what Paul is saying here. Our good intentions are not enough. There must be a God-informed, God or gospel-soaked and saturated love that directs everything that we do. Love must be the direction. It's like the GPS that guides all of our priorities or else we're going to veer away from God's plan. So, what is love? Because in this day and age, there's a lot of places you could go. You could turn on the radio and find popular music that'll give you wonderful definitions of love that seem so great on the surface. You can turn to literature. You can turn to philosophy. You can turn a lot of different places that will give you a definition of love that might make you feel good for a while. I think it's really sad that love is basically the most other-centered, satisfying, and secure aspect of God's nature. When we understand God's love for us, there is a security there, there's a satisfaction there. When we love others the way God has loved us, there is a security there and a satisfaction there. But that love has been twisted by sin so that that thing that is most most other-centered, most satisfying and secure in God's nature becomes one of the most self-centered, shallow, and anxiety-ridden things in our culture. Have you seen that to be true? People say, well, you need love. And then, I mean, again, all you got to do is listen to popular music. Are these people satisfied in these loving relationships? No. For many of them, that's what drives their career. It's writing about the dissatisfaction with these relationships that gives them one song after another, after another, after another, after another, after... Okay, you get the point. And it's profoundly ironic. Now look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Listen to these definitions of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, he starts off with two points here about what love is. Love is patient and love is kind. And as I looked at those words and studied other places that they're used in Scripture, what really struck me is that the idea of patience is sort of an inward focus of love. Now, not love of yourself. It's more of an attitude. It's this idea of long-suffering. This is not patience as in, I know he's going to come around to my point of view, and I'm just waiting for it. Not that kind of patience. You're going to say what I want you to say. I'm just waiting for it. That's not what it's talking about. It's the patient endurance sometimes even of being wronged because you're trusting in something greater. God is the greatest example of long-suffering there is because we walked away from him in the Garden of Eden. All of humanity, we turned our backs on him. And every life since then has been lived in rebellion and ignorance and walking away from him. And yet, for God so 
loved the world that he gave his only son. That's long-suffering, patient endurance. Patience is love in our attitude. Kindness is the outward demonstration of love. It is love put into action. If you say you love someone, but you never do kind things for them, you don't really love them. Now, this is not kindness in terms of, I've got a few choice words that I want to say about what you're saying, but I'm refraining and saying something else, so I'm being kind. That's not kindness. That's just dishonesty, right? You're holding something in. Kindness is saying, I want what's best for you. I'm going to seek your ultimate good. And I'm going to work for that, even at great personal cost. It is this outward expression. And again, these two things together are shaped and informed and defined by, for Paul ultimately, by the love that Christ shows for us. So we need to be careful as we walk through this. We're not just looking at some really nice definition of love. Paul is looking at Jesus Christ and saying that's love. And you'll see that as we walk through more. Now he's going to go on at the the latter part of verse 4 and into verse 6 at the beginning. He's going to talk about some things that love is not. The really interesting thing as I've looked at each one of these is that they are all things that the Corinthians were struggling with. Again, these are not just some generic definitions that Paul is throwing out. He is specifically pointing at things that they were arguing about, the attitudes behind their arguments, and he is pointing at the Corinthians and he's saying, guys, that is not love. And all of these things are ultimately a perversion of God's perfect love. So let's look at some of the things, starting at the end of verse 4. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. All of these are things that put the self first, that looks at somebody else and says, I'm better than you, I'm greater than you. Or looks at somebody else and says, I want what you want, so I'll at least be equal to you, if not better than you. It's a very selfish view. They are relationships born from competitions and comparisons rather than compassion. That's not love. Look at verse 5. He says, It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrong. We saw earlier that the Corinthians were even taking other people in their church to court to win over them for maybe a business deal gone bad or something. We don't know exactly what it was. And as we looked at the culture, we saw that if you took somebody to court... You won not by proving you were right and they were wrong, but by by proving you are better and they are lower and worse. So that the judge would look at you and say, well, you have more honor. This person has less honor, so you are right. So the goal in those court cases was to make the other person feel and look as bad as you possibly could. And Paul's pointing to that, I think, specifically and many other things and saying, guys, I think he would say, I shouldn't even have to say this. That's not love. Love is not self-seeking. It's not focused on self and our personal happiness and our personal pleasure. And guys, i got to say, this is the fundamental point where our world has got it wrong. When we divorce ourselves from God, from His standard, we are left then with our own standard. 
And instead of seeking some good outside of ourselves or seeking God's ultimate good and His glory by worshiping Him, well, it makes sense that love becomes selfish. Well, now I have to look for what will make me happy. And that very much becomes the world's definition of love. And Paul says, no, love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love is not ultimately trying to win. Love is trying to love. It should not be selfish. Now, I need to say here, because along with this selfishness, some of you might be sitting here thinking, man, I wish so-and-so would love me that way. Boy, I wish my husband would love me that way. I wish my wife would love me that way. I wish my kids loved me that way. I wish my friend loved me that way. If we're listening to this chapter, focusing on how other people love us, we're guilty of the very thing that Paul is saying. Self-seeking. We need to listen to this and say, am I loving others this way? That is absolutely crucial. Or we are still just living out and acting out that selfish definition of love. Now look at verse 6. Love does not delight in evil. I have a hard time believing that anybody in Corinth said, man, I really love you and you are doing something evil and I, I just think that's great. Because I just love you. I think that's awesome. Or I don't think anybody in Corinth was saying, you know, there's this really evil, awful thing that's going to hurt you so much, and that's what I want for you because I love you. I think what Paul is doing is he's drawing this to a grand climax. And he's saying all these little things that you don't realize are unloving actually are unloving. And then ultimately he's saying by rejoicing in them, you are rejoicing in that which is evil. When you put it in that light, really causes you to think, doesn't it? How are we loving others? May we inadvertently be seeking evil for someone under the guise of loving them. That hurts, doesn't it? And it happens all the time. So what's the answer? Well, he goes on, love rejoices in the truth. Now, we may want to read that and just say, see, if you love someone, you always need to be honest with them. You always need to tell the truth. And that's true. Okay, We should be honest with those we love and everybody. And we should always tell the truth. But I think for Paul, it is much more than that. It is the truth. And later on, he's going to talk about the faith. And for Paul, this is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the truth that God sent his son to die on the cross for us. That kind of love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Not because we are good enough in and of ourselves to always love people the right way, but because we're looking to Christ and knowing that's how he loves them. That's what we're trusting in. That's what we're persevering for and what we know will persevere. The truth that love rejoices in is the truth of God's love. God's character, God's perfect plan, the fact that he created that person, that he longs for a relationship with that person, that he gave his son to die for that person, and that one day he's coming back and he wants that person to be with him. That's the love that Paul is calling us to. Listen to John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God, 
because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Throughout this series, we've been talking about what it means to be saturated by the gospel. A a church that is so, I think the subtitle was fully soaked in the gospel of God's grace. As I look at scripture, I see the church is supposed to proclaim the gospel. We are to go out into this world and share Jesus Christ with others. Absolutely. But there's also this sense that God has called us together to be a living, breathing demonstration of a gospel-soaked community. So the way we treat each other proclaims the gospel. The way we worship together proclaims the gospel. The way we study God's word together becomes a demonstration of the truth of Jesus Christ. So if we proclaim the gospel and tell others about Jesus, but the way we treat each other and the way we live together and love each other is something different than the gospel, we are destroying our witness. And so Paul is telling the church here, the way you love each other matters. And he says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. This is back to John. Actually, it's 1 John, I believe. Uh, But no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And what he's saying there, what John is saying is, by looking at the way we love each other, they're seeing God's love. We've talked about this over and over and over again. As a church, we don't want people to look at us and go, wow, they're awesome. We want people to look at us and say, wow, they must have a great God. They must have a great Savior. Our love is to point beyond us. The church is to display and proclaim the gospel. The gospel is the most loving truth ever. It's the most loving message that there could ever be that we who are enemies from God, living in rebellion, can be saved by the gift that God has given us. His Son, Jesus Christ, dying in our place, taking our punishment upon Himself, that we can be with Him forever. That's how we are to love each other. Now at this point, let me just say as an aside here, it's good within the church to talk about how we love our society. It's good within the church to talk about how we love our neighbors, how we love those outside the church, and that's good. But that's actually not at all what Paul is saying here. Here he's saying you have to get it right first inside the church. That's not to say we ignore them. It's to say we have to get it right here first. There's a lot of mentions in the New Testament about showing love to people, loving others, going out of our way to love others. The majority of those references throughout the New Testament are references to Christians loving Christians. Again, that's not to say we shouldn't love our neighbor. We should. We must. Jesus said that. But I think we've lost the emphasis sometimes. It's almost like we come together to worship. We come together to learn. We come together to sing songs. But we come together to demonstrate God's love in this community and to invite others to say, come on in. Be a part of this community saved by Jesus Christ and experience the love that is there in Christ. 
We must love one another. What defines your love? Where do you get your definition of love from? We need to recover love and look to God's love, the perfect standard of love. And when we do that, we get a new perspective. Look at verses 8 through 13. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Think for a second some of the effects of our sin upon ourselves and this world. When Adam and Eve turned away from God, we we call that the fall. All of humanity fell away from this relationship with God. We lost our direct relationship and communication with God. We see that when Adam and Eve are pushed out of the garden. They lost that ability to wake up in the morning and say, oh, there's God, he's right there, I'm going to go talk to him, I'm going to ask him a question right there in his presence. I know him because he's right there. They were put out of his presence. We've lost our ability to communicate with each other. Our languages have been confused. We see this in the Tower of Babel. We lost our knowledge of God. Through the temptation and the sin, the temptation that the devil presented to Adam and Eve is that you would be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, how did that work out? Not so great. That knowledge that they longed for became destructive and harmful. Instead, as Romans 1.25 says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. So here are some effects of the fall. And all of Scripture from Genesis chapter 3 to the end of Revelation is a record of God's efforts to restore us to that relationship for which he made us for. And as a part of that in the early church, prophecy was necessary as a way for God to communicate his truth to a church that didn't have Scripture yet. So God said, I will speak to you through people I have raised up. And we see it in the Old Testament as well. Tongues became a way for us to communicate God's truth to others in a language we did not know. And a sign of the kingdom that was to come when the Tower of Babel would be done away with and all of the languages would be set right. We would stand on the streets of heaven and we can just talk. And there will be no barriers. And knowledge, God's truth given to us that has been distorted and destroyed, and yet God said he would raise up people in the church to teach us his perfect knowledge. All of these things are important, and they were highly valued by the Corinthian church, but they missed something. Because they got so focused on the here and now and how they could use their gifts to fix their situation, they missed something bigger. They missed love. You see, love existed before the fall. Love existed in the Garden of Eden. When they woke up and had that perfect relationship with God, it was a relationship of love. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden together before sin entered the world, they had a perfect relation of love. When Christ comes back, 
when we don't need prophecy anymore because we'll be standing in the presence of God, when we don't need somebody to give us knowledge about God because we'll be standing in His presence, when we won't need any sort of tongues or way of communicating to overcome our barriers because we'll all speak the same language and understand each other, we'll still have love. And he's telling the Corinthians, you have set your sights too low. These things that are important are supposed to lead somewhere greater. Don't get stuck in them. And then he says, verse 13, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. This is not just some ethereal idea of sincere faith, sincere hope, sincere love. This is the faith in Jesus Christ. This is the hope in Jesus Christ's coming. It is the love of Jesus Christ. He says this is what's most important. In one day, one day we won't have to cling to a faith in that which is unseen because He will be seen. We won't talk about levels of faith because we will all, if we are saved by Christ, live in Christ's very presence. You won't say, will you believe? You'll say, well, He's right there. He's right there. We won't need hope that Christ is coming back because Christ has already come back. He's right there. But we will still live in love. Love is a new perspective that says we are not God. We are not the definition of what somebody else needs. God is God and we are not. And so I will love them selflessly in a way that points to the selfless love of Jesus Christ. It's a perspective that this world, these pressures and priorities are passing away. Christ is coming. So our love needs to point to Jesus Christ. We don't want people to get so caught up in just coming and being with us and saying, oh, this is so loving, this is so great, that we leave Christ out of the picture. And we're not pointing to the greater love that is coming. That's why verse 8 says, love never fails. It's not because as Christians we're so awesome at loving. It's because the thing we're pointing to and trusting in is Christ's love. And guess what? That never, ever fails. Like the church in Corinth, as we follow Christ, we must follow the way of love. It sets our course and keeps our church on track. Without it, our good intentions, our good ideas, they will get us off course. Listen for a second to how Jesus loves you in Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's our standard of love. That's what the world needs to see. That's what we need to demonstrate to each other. Because the love of this world is a poor and twisted and perverted substitute that will never bring satisfaction. If you're here today and you're struggling to love other people, might I suggest, without knowing you personally, without knowing all the things you're going through, and there might be a lot more than what we're saying here, but can I give you a starting point? If you're having a hard time loving other people, maybe, just maybe, it's because you haven't first understood and accepted God's love for you. Because when we don't have the security of God's love, 
we are forced then to go out and find our security in other loving relationships that are going to let us down. But when we have the security of God's love, a love that, as Romans 8 says, nothing can take away from us, well, then we can love others freely. And if they hurt us and they let us down, we're still loved. We're still secure. We're still saved. We're still destined for heaven. It frees us to love others and to love each other. When we know Christ's love, we have a direction. And all of our priorities, all of our gifts, all of our purposes then flow in line with that direction. God's plan, God's purposes lived out and expressed in love. Because a church saturated with the gospel becomes a visible demonstration of the love of Christ for others to see. And isn't that exactly what our world is longing for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, this is a high calling to love others. And God, even within the church, we're talking sometimes about people that are difficult to love. And sometimes those people that are difficult to love are ourselves. And yet, God, you showed us how to love difficult people because you loved us that way. And I pray, Father, as as Orchard Community Church, that we would live in our relationships with each other as an act of love to demonstrate the gospel. And God, I praise you for the work you've been doing in this church. I hear over and over and over again from visitors how much they felt loved when they walked through those doors, how much they felt loved in the cards and the calls and, and the way people reached out to them. We heard from Occam this morning the way his family has been loved by people in the church. God, we thank you for that. May we continue with that. And may others see us and look to Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.